About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, or everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cr- cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. There is my opinion, there is your opinion, and then there's what Michael has just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own. Thank you that you sometimes say things that we don't really want to hear because you love us. We pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. That we would taste and see your goodness. That we would behold your beauty. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at City Church. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are really, really thankful that you took time Uh, to join us this morning. We are in the middle of a series 
on the, uh, on the letter of Hebrews and we come to that passage. When I first got here, um, I was having lunch down at Center 615 with the elders and we were talking about how do we do this thing? And particularly, how do, we, how do we think about preaching and what we preach? And we talked about how sometimes I would come up with what we're gonna do and sometimes they might like get a sense that, oh man, our congregation needs to, to, to think about this or to think about that. And, and it was Rick who I think said, you know, we might say to you, hey, Jeff, uh, you need to preach through the book of Hebrews. And Aaron, do you remember what I said? I won't do that. (laughs) This passage is the reason why. This pass some passages in scripture are difficult to understand, and some passages are are hard to hear. This passage is both difficult to understand and it's hard to hear. It's difficult to understand because. The, the, the language that the author of Hebrews uses is, is somewhat ambiguous. I mean, what exactly does it mean that someone has been enlightened or tasted the heavenly gift or shared in the Holy Spirit or tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come? The, the author of Hebrews doesn't actually tell us. And more importantly, this passage is is hard um, to hear. I mean, what, what does he mean that it is impossible for someone who has had all of these experiences and then have fallen away to be restored again to repentance? Who's he talking about? Um, and, and perhaps more importantly, could he be talking about me? Um, these, these words are are sobering, they're unsettling. And you know what? I think the author of Hebrews is okay with that. I I think the author of Hebrews wants us to ask the question, could he be talking about me? Like the apostle Peter, the author of Hebrews wants us to make our election and calling sure. But what you need to understand is the author of Hebrews, he's not not saying this because he's angry. He's not saying this because he's mean. He's not saying this because he's self-righteous. He's not saying this because he's being judgmental. He's actually saying this because he loves these people. Look at verse nine. What does he call his congregation in verse nine? Beloved, beloved, This pastor loves his congregation. They are are dear to him. He writes these words, these words that we are considering this morning because he knows that his congregation is in danger. In chapter 10, we learned that the people who are reading this letter for the first time, that they have, they have gone under the gun, that they have, have suffered some, that they have been ostracized, marginalized, even persecuted. And as a result, they're wrestling with, do I really want to do this thing? 
They're, they're counting the cost. And it, they don't know if they want to pay the price. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls us to himself, he bids us come and die. And these people, they are experiencing that. And they don't know if they want to keep doing it. And this pastor, he knows that they are in a dangerous place. His desire for them, he states it in this, in this, in this, in this passage, is that they go on to maturity, that they, they produce a useful crop, that they, he, wants, he wants them to continue to, to bear fruit, the fruit of love in the service of one another. He wants them to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants them to hold fast to the hope who is Jesus Christ, their sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And so what does he do? He warns them. Like any of you who are mothers or fathers warns your child about the dangers of running into the street or, or touching a hot eye on the stove. He, he warns them. And, he, and in the process, he warms, warns us. So the, the first question that we need to think about this morning is, how does walking away from Jesus begin? Because that is the temptation that they're facing. That's what's on the table. Look at verse five, verse 11. The author writes, about this we have much to say. He's talking about, he's just introduced Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he says, I, I, I can't go there right now. We need to talk about this first. He says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become what? Dull of hearing. The Greek word that's translated dull of hearing in verse 11 is the same word that is translated sluggish in, in, in verse 12. I think um, chapter six, verse 12. What the author is saying in our passage is very similar to what he said back in chapter two. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. You see, his readers hear, but they are not listening. His readers hear, but they are not paying attention. Maybe, maybe you've had this experience. I hate to admit it, but it, it sometimes happens at my house. I'll walk into the kitchen and Kathy will start talking. She'll, she'll want to tell me something about her day or she'll want to tell me about something she's learned or, or, or whatever. And she'll start talking and I will look at her and I will occasionally nod my head. You know where I'm going, Jim. Um, I nod my head and she finishes and I have no idea what she's just said. That's what's happening in this little church that the author is writing to. And, and the result of this dullness of hearing, what is it? He tells us two words, spiritual 
immaturity. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, what's he talking about? Well, D.A. Carson, this uh, New Testament scholar, studied this passage, and, and this is his conclusion, that the heart of the issue is that these people aren't listening to, they are not studying, they are not absorbing, they are not applying, they are not being formed by, they are not living under, they are not living out the word of God. They know the basics of Christian Christianity. They know the basics of the faith and that's all. And here's the deal. They're fine with that. The question that you and I need to be asking ourselves is, is that me? Am I, am I content with milk? Friends, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the fact that a baby needs milk and not solid food. But here's the thing, you can't survive on milk. What the author is saying is this, he's saying that if, if, you, were, if you were not hungry to grow, if, if you're content with the way you are, if you are content with where you are spiritually, if, if all you really want is a, is a dash or a sprinkle of the gospel, if all you really want is, is just enough religion to, to make you feel good, you're in danger. I read this silly poem a number of years ago and it dawned on me this morning, oh yeah, do you remember that poem, $3 worth of God? Have you guys ever heard that? I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Is that you? Is, is that how you think? Is that how you live? Here's the thing. The author tells us, man, the stakes are high. The author writes in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What that means is that if you are still on the spiritual bottle, you really shouldn't trust what you think is good or evil, what is good or bad. Why? Because your powers of discernment have not been trained. Your powers of discernment have not been developed. I mean, think about that for a second. The author is saying that your powers of discernment have to be trained in order to distinguish good and evil, in order to distinguish what is right and what is wrong. That's, and, and that means that, that just because you think something seems right to you, it's not necessarily right. 
And here's the thing, when life gets hard and things don't go the way you want them to go, when questions and doubts start coming, when when the culture contradicts scripture, you won't know what to do or how to think. You'll be tempted to think that what the Bible says is ridiculous or regressive. Why? Because you have a kindergartner faith in an adult world. And when the storms of life come crashing in, and they will, you will be crushed. The author, he loves his people. And he's concerned for his people. That's why he says in chapter six, verse one, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. All of these doctrines that are listed following, the not laying Again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith in Christ, a faith in faith towards God. He's, he's sort of talking about Christianity 101, the Christian basics, instructions about the washings. It's probably a reference to the various cleansing rituals of the Old Testament. Remember, these folks probably are Jewish people who became believers. He's, he's referring to the, the cleansing ref, uh, rituals of the Old Testament that point to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The laying on of hands, he's, he's talking about prayer, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He's talking about our hope. All of these doctrines are absolutely fundamental and they are absolutely foundational to your faith. They are the ABCs of Christianity, but knowing the ABCs isn't the goal. The goal is learning how to read life and how to live life with the wisdom of God. The goal is, is, is to learn how to read life through the lenses of scripture. The goal is to have your powers of discernment trained so that you can distinguish what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is going on. Now when the author says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ, he is not saying, let's forget the elementary doctrines of Christ anymore that when a person learns how to read, he or she forgets the ABCs. But the point is that you can't stop with the ABCs. We can't be satisfied with the ABCs. It's appropriate and expected that a a kindergarten class will be filled with five-year-olds. What do you learn in, in, in kindergarten? You learn the ABCs. But it's not appropriate or expected that a kindergarten class would be filled with 15-year-olds or 25-year-olds or 45-year-olds. The author of Hebrews is exhorting us to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and what? And go on to maturity. Where are you? Are you listening? Are you growing? Or are you in a holding pattern? Are you coasting? Are you dull of hearing? That's the question that the author is asking. Second question that we need to think about is what does someone who walks away from Jesus look like? These words from chapter six are are pretty unsettling. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What's he talking about? Once enlightened. 
tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and tasted the powers of the age to come. What do you think about when you hear that? You think, man, that sounds, that sounds like someone who believes. And we immediately want to ask the question, is the author of Hebrews saying that a believer can lose his or her salvation? And what we really want to know is, can I lose my salvation? But that's not the question that the author of Hebrews is answering in Hebrews 6. For what it's worth, in chapter 7, verse 25, the author of Hebrews answers our question for us when he says, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What the author is saying in chapter 7 is the same thing that Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You know, the, the, the author believes that if you are a believer, a true believer, if you've drawn near to God through Christ Jesus, he's got you. There is nothing you can do to sabotage your salvation. But again, that's not the question that he is wrestling with in Hebrews chapter six. The question he's asked, wrestling with in Hebrews chapter six is, what does someone look like who walks away from Jesus? And his answer is verses four and five. What's he saying? I don't know if you guys have seen this documentary called Some. It's about, what, what do you, how do you say it? Some, Somalias? They're not from Somalia. They are people who are experts in wine. I mean, they spend years cultivating this ability to swirl wine in a glass, smell it, taste it, wash it around in their mouth, and then tell you things about the climate that the grape was, was raised in and tell you like, was it, a, was it a wet year or was it a dry year? They could, they could tell you what kind of grape it is. They could probably tell you what vineyard it comes from. But do you know what they do with the wine after they're done tasting it? They spit it out. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in this passage. The author of Hebrews says that people who, that's what people who walk away from Jesus do. They, they taste the gospel. They swish it around in a cup. They smell it, it smells good. They, they, they sip the beauty of Christ. They swish the word around in their mouths. They might get excited about Christ or Christianity or, or the Christian community or the church or ministry or missions but they never actually drink in the gospel of Jesus. And the fact is we see examples of this in the Bible. I've been reading through the book of Exodus in the mornings recently and it dawned on me. I was thinking about this passage and I was thinking about what the author of Hebrews says in chapter three. Remember? In, in the book of Exodus, 
the Lord delivers 60, what, 600,000 men and there's a bunch of women and children as well. And then there's all these stragglers. He delivers them from slavery in Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea, right? Then they, when they get to Mount Sinai, they actually hear the voice of the Father pronounce the Ten Commandments over them. Every day for 40 years, they eat manna from heaven. They are protected. They see miracle after miracle after miracle. But the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter three that most of them hardened their hearts and they did not enter into the promised land. They did not enter into God's rest. That's an Old Testament example. New Testament example, Judas Iscariot. Now, we hear the name Judas and we think bad guy, we think horns, we think, you know, ooh, he's really bad. The disciples entrusted Judas with all their money. We think Judas is bad. The disciples thought he was good. Why did they think he was good? Well, well, Judas, he seemed enlightened like everybody else. He had heard Jesus teach and he'd actually been, even been sent out with the other 11 disciples to preach the gospel. He had tasted the heavenly gift. He had been in the room, the upper room, when the disciples celebrated the first Lord's Supper together. Judas shared in the Holy Spirit, in that when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach, he also sent them out to perform miracles, to cast out demons, and to heal people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had ta- or Judas had tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the ages to come, in that every day, day in and day out, he walked with Jesus around Palestine and he listened to him teach and he saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, Judas was never really a believer. In fact, in John 17, Jesus calls Judas the son of disaster. And in Matthew 26, Jesus says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Heavy. What does this mean? Well, it means that a person can get really excited about Jesus. A person can get really excited about Christianity. A person can get really excited about Christian community. A person can get really excited about Christian missions or Christian ministry and not actually know Jesus. It means that you can have all of these experiences and not have Jesus, which begs the question, how can you know if you really know Jesus? The author lays it out for us in verses seven and eight. It's fruit. It's the fruit of God's grace in our lives. There's God's reign of grace in them, fruit. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews sees in the lives of his congregation, right? And in verse 10, he says, it is their work and love that they have shown for his name in serving the saints as what? As they, as they still do it. It's not a past work, it's a present work. 
What does this mean? Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way. He says that the evidence that you are saved is that you are being saved and that your life is being transformed, that God's salvation is evident in your life. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He said, genuine saving, or genuine saving grace perseveres. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Which is exactly what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter three, verse six. In Hebrews chapter three, verse six, the author likens Christians to God's house and he says this, he says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that genuine saving faith produces persevering faith. He's not saying and, and Sinclair Ferguson is not saying, D.A. Carson is not saying, Jesus is not saying, he's, he is not saying that we are saved because we persevere. He's saying, if we are saved, we will persevere. We persevere because we are saved. Well, what, what are we supposed to do with what he says in verses four and six, that it is impossible for one who has fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What do we do with that? How do I know he's not talking about me? Do you repent? Do you repent of your sins? Maybe think about it like this. Where do you turn when you come face to face with your sin? Where do you turn when you are flooded with self-doubt? Where do you turn when you hear this passage? If you were a believer, you turn to Jesus. The reason it's impossible for this person who is described in verses four through six to repent is not because his sin or her sin is more powerful than the grace of God. It's because this person has turned away from Jesus and repentance by its very definition means turning to Jesus. So as long as this person refuses to turn to Jesus, there is no possibility of repentance because repentance means turning to Jesus. But if you turn to Jesus, he cannot and he will not say no. And these are, these are intense, intense words, hard words, heavy words, deep, deep truths. But I want to encourage you this morning that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for sinners. In Mark 2, 17, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I am not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elsewhere, he invites each of us, no matter where we are, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how we're feeling this morning, to come to him and find rest, to come to him and receive mercy and grace because his grace is sufficient. 
Beloved, the author's goal here is not to undermine your faith, but to encourage you to examine yourself, to, do, to, 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 to be honest with yourself, and then to press on and press into Jesus and persevere. He, he, yes, he, he wants you to examine yourself, but he doesn't want to leave you there. He doesn't want to leave you looking at yourself, which is why I think the author of Hebrews brings up Abraham at the end of this chapter. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, you know that he was anything but perfect. I mean, he did some pretty great stuff. I mean, God appears to him and says, go, and not even know where, knowing where he's supposed to go, he packs his bag, he, he gets his family together, and he goes. It's pretty amazing. But the same Abraham, not once but twice, denied that his wife was his wife so that he wouldn't be killed. And when, 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 uh, when it seemed like God was taking a little long on fulfilling his promise that he would have a son, he and his wife decided they would take things in their own hands and he slept with Hagar and bore a son and it created all kinds of problems, all kinds of difficulties. I mean, Abraham was, is anything but a perfect example. So why does the author of Hebrews tell us <laughs> to look at Abraham? Well, it's not because we're supposed to imitate Abraham. Abraham is not an example to imitate. But what Abraham did do is he kept coming back to God. He kept coming back to God. He kept coming back to God. It's not that Abraham is great, but that his faith in the Lord, although it wavered at times, was ultimately great. He trusted God to be faithful to his promise. Now, let me ask you a question. In verse 13, why are we told that God not only made a promise to Abraham, but he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you, which is the sort of Old Testament declaration of the gospel. It's the fundamental salvation promise of the Old Testament. Why did, God, why did God swear after making that promise? Why did he swear to Abraham? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't for his sake. I mean, God's word is never iffy. Abraham was iffy. Abraham's faith fluctuated all over the map. God swore to Abraham for Abraham. It was to increase Abraham's faith. And here's the thing. We have something better than a promise and an oath. The author tells us we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the tent, into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And because he is our high priest, he is able to save us to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Beloved, this is where the author of Hebrews goes. For the next three chapters, he is going to be teasing out what it means that Jesus is our high priest. But, but this is at least what it means that Jesus is our high priest. He has made sacrifice for us. And his sacrifice is sufficient. His sacrifice takes away our sins and he clothes us with his righteousness. What this means for us this morning is come to him. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're thinking this morning, come to him. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough to ask us hard questions. But thank you that you also love us enough that you don't leave us looking at yourself, but that you remind us that Lord Jesus, you are our high priest. You are our only hope in life and death. You have done everything for us that we need, that we might one day enter into, enter into the temple of the living God, that, that you might dwell with us and that we might dwell with you. We pray that you would give us grace for today. That, that we might finish today well. And tomorrow, Lord, that you would give us grace that we might finish tomorrow well. Would you be our hope? Would you assure our souls? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.